What's up my fellow ambitious poker players and welcome to the Mechanics of Poker podcast in which me, Renee, aka The Wacko and Adam Carmichael deconstruct high stakes poker players, figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they have to develop to surpass them. This podcast is brought to you by Poker Ambition. If you are ambitious about making more progress in your poker career, go over to their site, pokerambition.com and find out which service is best for you. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hi there, boys and girls. Welcome back to another episode of the Mechanics of Poker podcast, episode number three. Today, we will have a chat with Mr. Jared Mann. Jared Mann is known for his super educational play and explain videos on YouTube. His channel helped me. Make sure to go and check that out. He plays both live and online, and I'm really curious to hear more about his journey through the ranks in poker. He mentioned it took him nine years to go from starting to play poker to actually beating 500 Zoom. I mean, we, everyone knows 500 Zoom is very hard to beat, but that's quite a long time. So I'm very curious. I'm sure a lot has happened over those years. Together with me, Adam. Adam, I'm sure you share my curiosity for his journey. Yeah, I'm very excited for today's guest and to hear about his journey to the high stakes. It seems like it took him a long time to get out the micro stakes in particular. I think he says five years of not beating the games. So I'm going to really dig deep into what caused those obstacles and how he's able to overcome them to become a high stakes player. So uh, yeah, really fascinated to hear how he's been able to get himself to the high stakes and the journey he's went on. Yeah, episode three now, but it's starting to become a trend. It takes a while to get to high stakes, right? People want shortcuts. But so far, episode number three, at least five years is so far my diagnosis for getting to high stakes. Without further ado, let's get started chatting with Mr. Jared. All right, here we are. Hello, Mr. Jared. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I wanted to start this conversation off pre-poker. As you mentioned, some interesting stuff in there that I think might have had an impact on your poker career as well. I'm referring to the competitive gaming and chess in your teenage years. Could you elaborate a little bit more on those times? Yeah, for sure. So when I was a teen, I played a lot of video games, but all the video games I played, they're always, <clears throat> excuse me, they're always like competitive video games. Uh, not like they were today though, where you know there's giant tournaments and competitions. When I played video games, the only people doing competitive video games were in South Korea, like Elki, who played StarCraft. Um, so yeah, I played StarCraft. I played World of Warcraft Arena. Um, those are the only two I played competitively. But then I also played some chess as a teenager. I played chess uh, in chess club in high school and then chess online. I never got anything to like a high level in either of those things. Um, but they led me to poker. I actually found poker through video games. And everyone is very curious. Did you kick Elki's ass? No, I never played Elki. I never got to a level to even be competitive with Elki. Uh, like the difference between someone playing it for fun competitively online and playing it professionally is like the difference between like live one two and playing five hundred Zoom. Like it's a it's a huge 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 skill gap. Yeah. What did they have? Like what what makes an excellent StarCraft player? What did 
the Asians and Elki have that you didn't? So I don't know if you know much about the competitive StarCraft scene back in the day, but these people, they would go into gamer houses in South Korea and they would play 12, 13 hours a day and they would just practice against each other. And they would have something called a, a high APM, which is actions per minute. And they would be able to do like 300 to 400 actions per minute at the top level. And I was doing like 100 actions per minute. So they, they would just practice an insane wow. amount of time. They would. Wow. Yeah, I have seen like, yeah, I, I have seen Elki. I think Elki, Elki tried that, right? Like a multi set, like a world Guinness book record for playing multiple tables at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Um, I don't know if he did anything StarCraft related, but I think he tried like a poker record, right? Yeah, so he tried that for poker, but I think those that's probably a skill, right? For especially in the beginning when you yeah. could just mass multi table, yep. you know, supernova elite. That must for have sure, really yeah. helped him. Were there any were there any skills that you gained from from playing StarCraft and uh, and some other games that you brought with you when you started playing poker? Yeah, I think I think gaining the the computer and action skills do help for online poker. It, um, if you're playing a lot of tables. Uh, just the strategy aspect helped a lot, I think, too. Just to get my mind into, like, I don't know, a kind of focused on strategy. I was always interested in strategy, at least. Uh, it didn't actually work out for poker because for the first six years, I was playing recreationally and losing. But <laughs> I was always interested in the strategy, at least. So it was mainly the the, the strategic aspect that drew you towards, uh, like, StarCraft, chess, as exactly, well, already yeah. from a young age. Exactly, yeah. Very competitive as well, or could you could you could you let it go as well, or were you very competitive? Like if you would lose, you would jump in there right again. Yeah, exactly. Which was not good for poker because if I lose, that means I'd have to go buy another twenty five dollar gift card from Seven Eleven and put it on Poker Stars. <laughs> <laughs> so this is how so this is how it started. Seven Eleven. This is how it started. Your, uh, yeah, they did. Uh, yeah, and they were your poker career. There was a five dollar fee on the credit card too to. To buy it at 7-Eleven, the prepaid credit card. So I was paying like 20% rake just to deposit. Wow. No, no, no wonder. No wonder yeah. you didn't become a winning player in the beginning. Yeah, like, exactly. The rake was just unbeatable. The rake was too high. That's what I'm going with, and that's why that's why I didn't win. Rake was too high. <laughs> yeah. And then actually, at, at some point, you mentioned that um, uh, you saw high stakes poker. That was yeah. probably in the time that you were still playing playing video games and you were like, hey, high six poker, that seems cool, right? A uh, bunch of guys, big piles of cash in front of them, gambling it up. That seems like fun. Any 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 favorite uh favorite season or favorite character? Well, Ivy and Dwan were my favorite. Um yeah, I was playing I was playing WoW and one of my guild members, they linked me to high stakes poker. Like a video of uh I think it was Dwan bluffing someone like I think it was bluffing it was bluffing Howard Letterer with the 6-8 offsuit when he like five bet preflop and then they checked it down and he hit a pair and I was like, yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> but that also didn't help. <laughs> okay. So that was so so Tom Dwan was a you could say inspiration for your poker career. When I started, absolutely, yeah. And what 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 was it about him compared to the other tables? For example, I liked Semi Farha. You know, that was definitely my favorite character on High School Poker. What was it about Dwan? I liked, uh, so I watched maybe the whole season. And a lot of the players, they would just bet. They would play They would play their good hands. But Dwan would just go for it. You know, he would, he would be one of the few people who were going for, like, these insane bluffs. And that's what really drew me 
to poker is like going for the the insanity. He would really try to, I don't know, like own people. Um, which, you know, in retrospect, maybe he wasn't doing the most the most optimal things, but it was a really entertaining poker to watch. It was at least already, it opened up your mind for the possibilities, right? I remember, I think I heard a podcast with Gelfond where he said that he got in touch with Dwan and that I think the conversation was something about they had top pair and Gelfond was considered, okay, do we call or do we fold? And then Dwan was like, let's turn it into a bluff. And he was like, what yeah, the yeah. fuck? You know, yeah. like out <laughs> yeah. of the box plays. Do you remember that one hand he played where he had queen? He had queen 10. Do you remember that hand? Like it was like deuce, deuce, 10. And he got aces and a deuce to fold. It was like eight ways pre-flop. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was with the the guy who won the World Series, right? Yeah, Peter um, something. That was all from Barry, the end. Barry Greenstein. I forget his last name. Peter. Um, yes. Eastgate, I think it was. Anyways, yeah, he folded a deuce. Yeah, Eastgate, yeah, thank Eastgate. you. Yeah, Eastgate. Yeah, that was yeah, the match. Yeah, that was, that was my favorite hand on high stakes poker. Yeah, that hand was insane now that you mentioned. I, I suddenly get a flashback yeah. now. Basically using your top pair as a as a, as an as a, yeah, basically as a boat blocker, right? Yeah. And yeah, I remember blocked. East Gate was in a very tough spot. Because yeah, it was like a limp pot or something, right? Eight way indeed. Yeah, it was it was an eight way called pot preflop. I don't remember if it was limped or if I think Barry raised with aces under the gun and got seven callers. <laughs> and then he C bet like half pot or something, and Dwan raised. Eastgate cold called, Barry called, turn was a brick, and then Eastgate check, Barry check, and Dwan just barreled again, and they both folded. It was just insanity. Wow, yeah. That, I, so I can imagine that when you see that, you know, your mind indeed really opens up like, wow. Yeah. You know, <laughs> what, is, what is possible in this game, right? If, you, if, you, if you're willing to look for it. Yeah. So, you know, I is was trying that. Is it still something that I, motivates you up until today? Yeah, yeah. I mean... That that whole aspect of playing the game like that, it never quite goes away when that's where you when that's where you start in poker. But you know, trying that at, at five cent, ten cent and losing stacks left and right didn't actually work out for me, surprisingly. But uh it was inspiration, yeah, sure. <laughs> what was it about poker compared to like this because I assume at some point, you know, you started playing less chess, less Starcraft and more poker. What was it about poker that drew you to the game compared to these other games uh in all honesty it was probably the money because there's no money in professional starcraft when i played and there's not really any money in chess either and you know you need money but it was mainly the the act of playing cards was something cool like something romantic about the act of playing cards to win money because i'd always played cards you know with my grandparents with my parents you know we'd play whatever euchre or something like that and just the idea that you could make a living by just playing cards was kind of amazing. Yeah, I can I can strongly relate to that. But still, it was mainly the strategic aspect and the let's become the new Tom Dwan. Exactly. That was really yeah. the motivation, right? Not necessarily, that was the true oh, you can make good money yeah. poker, so let's play it for that. Can you relate to that, Adam? Yeah, 100%. I can relate to watching those same high-stakes games with Dwan and Ivy and being blown away and also super inspired by Tom Dwan's ballsy bluffs for hundreds of thousands. Um, and yeah, definitely inspired my kind of trajectory yeah. into uh, the online world as well and figuring out, wait a second, what is going on with this card game and how is it possible to uh, make money in, in this game as well? So yeah, definitely opened my eyes to the game in a, in a similar way. Yeah, so Jared, I'd like to take it back to uh, the start of your career. So uh, we've got this kind of framework of a competitive guy playing chess, 
StarCraft and you almost stumbled into poker or you found poker at some point with this competitive drive, it sounds like you went into the micro games and perhaps played there for a long time. You actually did play the, the micro stakes for a long time. So yeah, I would like you to talk about that yeah. chapter, getting started in poker and how the first few years went for you. Yeah, sure. So um, I started playing online poker when I was 16. Um, I mean, 18 poker stars, 18. And uh, um, <laughs> 18, yeah, I started when I was 18. And I, yeah, I would deposit $25 at a time. I would play like uh, those 20, I don't know if you remember, but there was 25 cent, 25 man uh, turbo tournaments that had no rake. They were on poker stars a long time ago or something. And I remember Dwan said something about how he started at like 25 cent uh, tournaments. So whatever, I would play those, I would bust, I would bust um eventually i would run it up to like 50 dollars, and then i would go buy into to 25 cent 50 cent and then bust that and then it was just a it was just kind of like a hobby where i was trying like a hobby where i was trying to take it seriously but i didn't have the money or the skill set to actually succeed um i didn't start actually studying poker and learning good strategy until maybe like six years after that so it was a long time of me you know either going to the casino and playing one two and you know dusting off my paycheck or like you know playing online and yeah a long a lot a lot of me playing it recreationally kind of wanting to be better but not actually applying myself and studying and, and learning good skills to make me good at the game yeah wow so five six years of that kind of recreational living so how were you supporting yourself at that time what was your job and occupation then uh between going to school and working i, I had i was a bartender for about four years and then when i finished school um in it i got an it job at a steel factory yeah nice so when you were trying to figure out poker what was your first five years like how were you trying to uh get better at the game was it just trying to get experience how were you trying to get yourself to be a winning player in those times uh by by playing more hands that's what i was trying to do i would uh if it wasn't working you know i would just play more hands and then uh and lose and that's about it i would talk with you know people when I play live poker, you'd talk with people and talk strategy and everything, but the real answer is I wasn't doing much to improve, like to get better. Um, nothing useful anyways. Yeah. So you were combining playing micro stakes online with one, two, and two, five live for the first four or five years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think I was a little, uh, I was too, like I was too cocky when I was when I was growing up with poker and like, you think that what you ever, the little amount that you've learned is enough to beat the game and you just attribute it to, you know, it's bad variance, it's bad variance. It'll turn around, it'll turn around. And that was a long time for me. It was way too long. It was mainly just being too cocky, I think. Yeah. During that time, did you still keep the optimism and the hope of potentially being a winning player? Was the dream still strong during those years? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was a long, it was a long stretch, but the dream's always still alive when you're playing a, a gambling game, I guess, because you can always, uh, you can always blame something else other than yourself when you're playing a gambling game. Yeah. So, what was the obstacle you were running into? Obviously, your strategy maybe wasn't as good as it could be. What was the obstacle you found yourself continually to uh, that five-year period? What was stopping you from building a bit of a bankroll, getting a bit of a win rate? What was holding you back then? Uh, making like one Tom Dwan punt every 200 hands, maybe, and not even like in a, a good way, like, you know, uh, just a, a horrible, horrible punt. Like, I don't know, I'd be, I'd be playing live one, two, and some guy would three bet me, and I'd have, I open the button with like ace five off or something. I'm like, I don't believe him. I'm going to raise him. 
and then he goes all in and i'm like well i have an ace so i have the right price and maybe he has kings like maybe we can hit the ace <laughs> you know once one of those every eight hours adds up yeah overly aggressive trying to uh play like the high stakes guys in the, the low yes. stakes game yes. yeah so when did it start to turn around um so it started turning around when um so five years yeah when i was about 23 i guess it started turning around 23 22 maybe maybe a little bit later but i read applications of no limit hold'em by matthew janda and it kind of introduced me to a lot of concept that i had never even thought about before um and then i read his second book which was no limit hold'em for advanced players and that completely changed the way that i um that I thought about poker. It just completely revolutionized every thought I ever had about poker. And since then, I've approached it in a completely different way. Oh, wow. That was like a turning point. And yeah, not, I, don't, I don't get any kickbacks from the books, but... Uh, yeah, what were some of the changes that went into your game around that time? So you started reading these books, Application of Poker. And when did it... How did that impact your game in the short term when you're playing these micro-stakes games? So in the short term, um, good preflop ranges as well as more solid post-flop strategies uh, had a direct impact. Um, I think the main, the main thing that changed is it changed my mindset on poker. Rather than you know trying to win, I was trying to play a good strategy. That was the main thing that kind of just, that I, stopped, I stopped spewing as much because it's just like a different approach to the game. Yeah, it's almost like you started to see the, the hidden pieces and the actual strategy game that was being, that's going on the whole time. Rather than trying to overaggress players, you saw the bigger picture. Exactly. Yeah. So, Rene, I think this would be a good time for you to dive in and ask some yeah. questions on some of the strategies that Jarrett was able to pick up during that time after doing a full, almost like a full um, shift of mindset and approaches during this this period. Yeah, it, re it really sounded like you went from uh, the Jedi mind reader trying to figure out how to beat everyone to more being like, hey, if I play solid, they make mistakes, so I make money, right? I don't have to look everyone up and it was funny that you actually said right you can rationalize anything else oh, five years i've been in a downswing for five years right and especially yeah, exactly. as you mentioned you were a bit cocky exactly. uh maybe like mm -hmm. oh the, the overconfidence from the gaming put in the uh, put into the poker tables right you already felt sure, yeah. i think it's called the halo effect right adam if i'm not mistaken mm -hmm. so i want to i want to highlight something that you said which was you weren't applying yourself to the game mm -hmm. um then you bought bought Shout out to Mr. Matthew, Matthew Jenna. You, yeah, you bought his books, Jenna. everything turned around. I'm sure he will get a big a big yeah. sales now suddenly, <laughs> like a spike in sales. He's like, what the hell happened? Oh, wait, Jared, man, uh, recommended me to everyone who's listening, right? Everyone yeah, I mean, who's stuck it's... is now, the books are my solution. <laughs> um, so how does applying yourself to poker look like after you've read the books to before you've read the books? So before I read the books, Applying myself was trying to play more hands, more hours, and just trying to win and beat people just by, like you said, using Jedi mind tricks. And then applying myself afterwards was I actually started studying off table a lot. Um, I started studying a lot more than I played. Um, maybe like 80% studying, 20% playing, maybe even a higher ratio than that. And... Yeah, so it was it was just a lot of off-table studying. Um, I bought a few more books. I uh, looked at online resources. Instead of depositing $50 online, I would spend $50 on a course or something like that. And I would just do a lot of studying. 
So you're actually going from spending to investing. Exactly. Exactly. Because I, I like a, fell a in love with strategy. The, yeah, <laughs> definitely better than my other strategy. Because whereas before I was obsessed with playing and trying to beat people, now I was I was obsessed with learning whatever the best strategy is. Interesting. Yeah, you. I can imagine that also gives you a certain peace, right? That yeah. you don't have to force the action. A hundred percent. And that, but but I understand there's a bit of a conflict, right? You wanted to become like Tom Dwan, and in the same time, this book tells you, "Hey, don't do anything crazy." <laughs> there is still lots of crazy stuff, though. That's that's the best part is that you got to do crazy stuff. It's just you have to do it in a good way, you know, like bet bet all in for 7x pod is pretty crazy but it's uh <laughs> that's in the book yeah that, that's interesting because I, I can relate to that as well where you go through phases of indeed inspiration and that inspiration in this case due to tom Dwan, can sometimes become a bit too spewy and then you kind of try to recalibrate but then you play a bit too too safe sort of and you're constantly sure. calibrating and trying to find like that sweet spot and yeah that that just takes time right yeah, exactly. That's that's what you should be doing in poker usually is that you know you learn a new concept, you try to apply it, you overapply, you bring it back, you realize how you should apply it. I was just doing it a little bit too extreme. And from there, basically you started winning? I started winning in the live games that I played, yeah. Um I was I stopped playing online basically unless it was just, you know, to practice and I was playing live 2-5 and I just went on a pretty big heater. Um, until eventually I reached live 510 and I started making more money than my job. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of never looked back after that. So it was basically just sort of a natural transition. You looked at your paycheck in your job, then you looked at your paycheck from, from the casino and it's like, mm, yeah, one is definitely making me more money than the other. So again, in, in retrospect, I was running insane and it wasn't an accurate representation of what you could expect to win, like playing live 2-5 or live 5-10. But I think I had put in maybe 800 hours in the year, and that was more than my yearly paycheck. Nice hourly. I was God running for sure. But... You were like, okay, this, this whole pro poker thing seems quite cool, right? Given the fact how you ran. So yeah. you quit your job. You start to play play live poker, I guess, then for a living? Yeah, playing live poker for a living, yeah. And then I, I guess at some point you had a little bit of a reality check. The, mm -hmm. the, cocky, the cocky Jared realized that, oh, wait, maybe I wasn't a little bit of a heater. <laughs> yeah, so I, I immediately, because, you know, this is how, just how life goes. You know, I quit my job and immediately I ran, like, horrible. Um, but then, yeah, I rebounded. Like, eventually I, I ended up, you know, getting it back. But you, you always get that reality check after you do something like that, I feel. Um, at the time when I quit my job, I wasn't uh, I wasn't nearly as cocky. I don't think I was I was cocky. I was kind of more realistic about poker, but I wasn't realistic about win rates. That's for sure. Like when your first eight hundred hours where you start applying yourself, you just run insane. You think that that's going to continue forever, and then <laughs> and then it just never does. Yeah, it's it's maybe not even think. It's more uh, the, uh, it's it's the ego who likes that reality of being a crusher. Yeah, so why would exactly. you why would you disturb that beautiful the beautiful world with with reality? Who likes that? Yeah, and then you and then you end up entitled to that. You think, and then if you don't run as good as that, you think that that's what you deserve. When in reality, you were just at like the peak of 
a really good run good and the reality is much lower but if you're if you only see the peak and like 800 hours in a year for live poker it's it's like no hands but it's a long time like time wise so you think like oh yeah i played a year that's a huge sample uh, it's always going to be like this did you notice a difference when you completely quit your job and only focused on poker like suddenly it was like maybe you played poker when you felt like it and now it was like yeah i have to go and play um yeah it it took a little bit of time um but yeah it it starts to become more of a grind for sure uh it also becomes a lot more stressful that's that's the main thing i noticed like i still really enjoyed the act of playing and studying uh at the time but the stress was immense compared to when i had a job the stress in terms of the pressure that you actually had to make money exactly exactly it was i didn't have any other um other income streams at the time so it was just poker and that's that's never a, a situation you really want to be in in my opinion if i could go back I, I would find a way to not have poker be my only source of income at least the act of playing poker yeah i think i think if you start out turning completely pro for a living too fast is indeed very stressful and if i if i look at in my in the people that i've coached Usually, if people didn't make it, there was some sort of financial pressure involved, which I think if you have financial pressure, it's very hard to be process-oriented, right? Because yeah. you need to win. So you become way more result-oriented. So the bad beats hurt you actually more, right? It's very yeah. – you will tilt way easier. I agree, yeah. You, you'll tilt way easier. You're more likely to spew off whatever remaining bankroll you have, more likely to tilt shot higher, I think. So I, I was actually now going to say what were a couple of these these, these tilt – these tilt issues that came up for you, but I heard one, you, you shot take higher trying to win your money back. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Like, um, not even just shotting higher. Um, when I, when I lost, it's just like, if I had a thousand dollars, I'd play five ten. If I had $200, I'd play one, two. And that's just what I would do. <laughs> and eventually once I started studying and you know, you, you have a good run, eventually you just stay there, but it was not a good bankroll strategy. That's for sure. But yeah, there is, there's like, I think you should find a sweet spot, right? Have some sort of balance. And then shot taking does have a good compound effect if the shots do sure. do take off. For sure. Yeah. You have to make sure. Maybe you're... indeed with a little bit of income on the side. Yeah. Yeah. I always had a job. So if, if I lost my, my poker money, it didn't matter. You know, I had a, I had a paycheck that paid for all my bills, but it was still like, maybe I could have stayed longer, you know, at, at live two five or playing micro stakes to improve. <laughs> I remember at our uh, at our CFP, we normally we only took in uh, guys who are already professionals, but we had a friend of a friend, and he was very enthusiastic, blah blah. So we decided to give him a shot, but he was still working. I think four days a week, and he said, "I'll oh, we'll work three days a week now and spend all of my time, the rest of my time, on poker." So we're like, "Okay, give it a try." And then slowly throughout the process, he went from working three days to two days to one day to quitting his job. Right, a very national trend transition, and I. It looks like in hindsight, maybe you would have liked to do the same, right? Bartender sure. job, four days a week, three days a week, two days a week, one day a week. Yeah. I mean, if I could go back, I'd do a lot of things uh, differently when it comes to poker. But I think, um, yeah, better better approach to poker and bankroll and poker money management would have helped me a lot. <laughs> so you were still playing live back in the time. When did you decide to transition into online poker and why did you decide to do that yeah i I didn't decide to do that covid uh covid happened 
COVID happened. Oh wait, I was gonna. I was thinking you were gonna say Black Friday happened, but we are way further ahead. Yeah, basically. and Black Friday was the opposite. <laughs> ah, interesting. So just for my just for my time perspective, you know where we are now. So basically, COVID happened, and you were like, okay, well then I guess I'll play online poker instead. Yeah, yeah. I was um I was playing online poker like maybe. You know, a hundred, hundred Zoom, two hundred Zoom, just to practice um, before COVID. But then when COVID happened, I was like, okay, I guess I got to take this online poker thing seriously. And yeah, I did. I did more studying after COVID than I've ever done in my entire life. Um, but before COVID, I was just playing live poker. So we had like um, we had a quarter fifty game that ran like three or four days a week for a long time, and it was it was great. And then COVID happened, and the game stopped just before COVID. Anyways, it was starting to slow down, and then there was no five ten. There was no, you know, no live poker at all, unless you wanted to play into underground games, which I didn't want to play. So, oh, interesting. And you you mentioned you would play like some hundred, some two hundred Zoom just to practice. Yeah. Would you then, if you would then go back to your live game, which was way higher, in terms of level difference? Is it comparable, like the 200NL Zoom games to your 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 quarter to to 2550 game? It's comparable in the sense that the 2550 game was much much easier. Like uh, it's not even close. <laughs> you would actually pick up, like basically the 200NL Zoom racks would put you in spots. Oh yeah. Where you could actually develop. So you basically went there to increase sort of the necessity to develop your game, and you yes. would pick some moves and apply that in your 2550 live game and you would basically become a very big crusher yeah I, w I wouldn't say i was a huge crusher back then but i was beating the game and um 200 zoom helped me help, helped me learn a lot like just practicing like of trying to apply what i learned um when studying was a lot easier to apply playing 200 zoom than it was to play live 2550 if that's if that's what you're getting at a lot easier yeah, especially if you're very into into GTO, a lot of spots are heads up. Oh, let's play Butterverse Big Blind. And then you're in a eight-handed full ring game where people are limping, you isolating four-way pots all the time. Yeah. You're like, ah, I want that I want that button versus big blind spot where I studied the A73. Exactly, exactly. And then you get like 20 hands an hour live, so it's tough to it's tough to get some practice. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a completely uh different game. Adam? Do you have any 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 questions on this part before he uh, before I guess he turned pro online after? Yeah, COVID? I'd like to talk about that transition from playing live to playing online because as you've talked about, like say the two hundred Zoom pools probably tougher than the twenty five fifty live games, and for a lot of players that's quite a daunting thing to come to the lower stakes online games. You've got to drop your ego. You've got to start learning these hard online games at lower stakes. So yeah, talk about your mindset during that time. Yeah. So COVID strikes, live games are off, and now you're on the online belt. Talk us through that transition, how you approached it from a mindset perspective. So from a mindset perspective, my mindset was that I'm going to study like an insane amount. I'm just going to put in like uh, a stupid amount of, of study work. Um, at the time, I was watching, again, I'm going to shout out someone, but I was watching, um, my name is Carl Fried Milders. Um, so I watched all of his videos, which was a lot. I was like 60 hours or more or something like that. And then I, I would go into PyoSolver and I would run all the spots that he did to verify it myself. And then I would, um, 
take hand examples of hands that I've played at 200 zoom and then of that spot and I would review my hands and then compare it to the spot. Um, so yeah, I just did, I did, my mindset was I'm going to go in this and I'm just going to study an insane amount. Like if these guys can beat it, I can beat it. And how many hours of studying were you putting in before you started to see some a good win rate in the games you were playing? Uh, so 500 zoom, it took me a while. Um, 200 zoom, I was already technically beating, but that got on a very small sample just from like my practice hands. Um, maybe like 250 to 500 hours after studying was when I really started to see results, I would say. Like from the, from the point of COVID, I would say maybe like, yeah, 250 hours of studying and I was putting in like maybe 30, 30 hours of studying a week. So whatever that is. And what were some of the biggest challenges you faced when you went into the, the online games, both from a like a kind of ego perspective and playing a lot lower, but also from a strategy perspective and having to play these tough games? What were some of the early obstacles you ran into? Um, some of the early obstacles I ran into is, for better or worse, my approach was to simplify as much as possible. Um, so that was me basically just betting one third of like every flop. Um, a lot of just like one sizes everywhere. Um, a lot of just like not thinking about the spot. A lot of just trying to apply heuristics about the spot that I would learn from like watching a video or or looking at a spreadsheet or something like that. So my, my biggest obstacle was the level of play. Seriously, like it was just uh, a very, very high level of play from what I was used to. And I can't think of anything specific other than it was just I was getting put in infinitely more tough spots than like when you play a live game. Just a lot harder decisions, a lot tougher spots. Yeah, so you've transitioned from the higher stakes live games to the kind of 200, 500 uh, online games, and you've noticed the level of play is a lot higher, yet it seems like you were not daunted by that in any way. If anything, you're almost like inspired to uh, outwork everyone, outstudy everyone. Where does that come from? Where does that approach to uh, these games are tough, but I'm gonna figure that out and beat them? Yeah, it was kind of out of necessity because um, for better or worse, the, the 500 Zoom and the Zoom games on Stars are really hyped up as being really tough. So if I'm going to play a game that's really tough, if, if I'm realistic about myself, if I need to beat it, I need to play better than the people in there. And the only way to play better than them is to outwork them. Other than your approach to studying, is there anything else you did yeah. during that time to uh, improve your game and your approach to poker? Yeah, studying with other poker players is, is good. You know, you could get some feedback. Um, get it's always good to have different views on on things, and so you're not just stuck in your own head and your own approach. Um, I watched, yeah, I watched a lot of a lot of videos, a lot of courses. Um, yeah, nothing else specific, I would say. Yeah, was there any point where you thought that the mountain might be too big, or that you won't be when when it going to be able to beat the games online or the 500 Zoom pool, for example? Uh. Just just like every day, I would say. Maybe not like, maybe not every hour or so, but yeah. So how do you keep yourself motivated to keep pursuing, to keep leveling up your game when you're facing obstacles like that? It's tough. Uh, I would say, well, I was, again, I was kind of forced to because, you know, like I said, I had quit my job and now it's like you, you kind of have to. So it's a little bit out of necessity, but I also just love the strategy. Um I love studying. I loved looking and learning new things and applying them. And and yeah, if I didn't love the strategy of poker so much, I don't think I would have been able to do it. So it seems like the necessity of 
do or die kind of mentality and also the love of learning and strategy mm-hmm. and improving your strategy seemed to uh, spur you on. And for some reason, you just kept that ambition, that motivational drive to uh, overcome whatever obstacle was in front of you and to defeat the games. So Rene, you might want to dive in here in terms of asking how he was able to uh, go from that transition to being a really good live player to beating these very hard 500 Zoom pools and what what some of the things you had to do to achieve that. Yeah, I also think it really helps, right? You went from 2550 to 200 NL. So like money-wise, first of all, you probably had, you weren't like in the past, uh, you didn't have to beat the 200 NL Zoom games in order to make a living, right? So yeah. This helps you to really have that view on like, oh, I love this. Oh, more obstacles. Oh, yeah, come on, make it very tough because you don't give a fuck about if you have a win rate right now or not, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I had an ample bankroll for 500 Zoom and 200 Zoom. Yeah, and man, playing playing underrolled has a very big impact on how you perform. Uh, And I guess overrolled always better from from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, And especially this this is how you can actually apply that love. We had an... Uh, I remember the first first podcast that was, I think, with yours as well, right? You were talking about how difficult tournaments, for example, are compared to cash games and how if you're already in a spot where you're financially sort of free, you can actually enjoy the difficulties that come along your road, or along your road right? Because it's like, oh, cool, I'm being challenged. Yeah. Whereas if you need the money, you're like, why does it have to be so hard? I just want to make money. Yeah. I need to pay yeah. my bills. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why do I why do I have to lose this flip here? Yeah, exactly, right? Outcome-oriented due to financial yeah. pressure. So if people yep. want to get a main takeaway from this uh, podcast, try to not get into financial difficulties because after that, it's very hard to grind your way out of poker. There you go, people. Problem solved. Just have more money. So just like, it was interesting, just like Matthew Jenna had a very big impact on your poker career, right? How he thought about poker. Uh, now you mentioned, uh, shout out to Mr. Mr. Fried Mulder. My name is Carl. Um do you remember some of the some of the eye-opening concepts that in those 60 hours of video that you watched of him that were like, oh wow. And were there a couple of conflicting points with what Matthew would say and what Mr. Carl would say? So I learned overbetting and like betting range small from from Mr. Matthew Janda, but then he didn't go into like the, it's all, you can only put so many so much information into a 300 page book. So from from yeah. uh my name is carl i learned more of specifics on spots uh some of the more eye-opening things were the strategies in three bet pots compared to how i was playing them um just things like you know being able to to lead lead in the cutoff after you call the three bet from the button because you know some boards favor your range so much as even as a as a preflop caller that you can you can lead um, that was one that was kind of eye-opening, not specifically because it would change my strategy a lot, but because it changed the way I thought about how ranges interacted on boards. Um, and then the, a lot of it was specifics to do with spots, like um, being able to you know range bet on certain textures, which bet sizes are good on certain textures and why, um, how how the solver actually thinks about barreling hands on the turn. Uh, that was one of the that was one of the main things I would say actually yeah, barreling on turn, following through on rivers because I was choosing the wrong hand classes a lot of the time. You were uh, strictly equity driven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's uh, I remember a friend of mine used to tag people 
equity barrelers, he would call them. Yeah. Okay. And <laughs> yeah. then you had yeah. a certain class. But then this is how we were taught, right? We were conditioned yeah. all the way in the beginning from, hey, equity is good. So then when you get called, at least you know you have some chances to improve. So it becomes yeah, quite natural. Yeah. I'm not bluffing. I'm semi-bluffing. That's what people used to say, right? Exactly. Semi-bluffing. <laughs> and semi-bluffing feels easier than, than just cold stone bluffing. Yeah, right? exactly. You're kind of like, oh, I'm not bluffing. I'm just semi-bluffing. It's fine. And it's funny that you mentioned that, like, uh, I'm very glad to hear it. That's good to my heart that I hear you uh, You like the donkey donkey on, yeah. the, uh, on some boards. But indeed, it's not necessarily that it's that frequent, even though if you start playing with solvers, I mean, you can make donk arguments on every street, almost in every situation. Sure. But it's indeed more like the eye-opening thing, right? You were used to, again, conditioned probably in the past to, you check towards the razor. Yeah, and now exactly. you kind of understood the concept behind it. Oh no, we check towards the razor because usually the razor has the equity advantage. Whereas mm -hmm. on certain boards, that's not the case. Oh wow, so then we actually don't check to the razor. So it's a, it's a revolutionary concept, right? And yeah. then you start to look at poker completely different and, and you kind of give your brain that information like, hey, brain, go look for spots where that's the case. Yeah. And poker starts to become yeah. a lot more enjoying. And like specifically regarding that, I would start thinking rather of like, oh, instead of checking to the razor, like you mentioned, which is exactly what I was taught, it's more of who does this favor and why? And we always have an option to bet. And like the only reason that a rate like a preflop aggressor might want to bet when they're out of position is because the board favors them and that goes reverse as well where there's a lot of spots where let's say you open the, the small blind get called by the big blind you want to check range now on some low boards so that was that was revolutionary in the concept where i stopped thinking in terms of who the preflop aggressor is just start thinking in terms of who does this board favor and why why are we betting we're not betting just because we raise preflop Boom! Mind-opening yeah. stuff. I can I, I I can imagine. I remember I had uh, similar, yeah, s similar epiphanies tr throughout those mm -hmm. time. Uh, that indeed, like when you start to understand why behind certain strategies, you went from mainly betting one third, and probably actually that yeah. sometimes force you in some tough spots later on, right? And then you suddenly understood, like, hey, wait, if I start to bet bigger. I actually achieved this with my sizing. Oh, wait, mm -hmm. now I don't get in that trouble spot anymore. Sure. Yeah. And like I was have like I said, when I first started playing, I was heavily simplifying and not necessarily for a good reason, but um, I knew how to play that strategy. But then the more, the more that you learn, the more that the concepts that you learn, you understand again, why you're doing things. And once you understand why, then it, then it becomes a lot easier. It just takes infinitely longer to understand why than to just do something. Yeah, and when you understand why, you also understand why not. Yeah, exactly. It's not easy to understand why. So it's like, for example, I'm I'm not necessarily against simplified strategies, but what simplified strategies often do, if you do it for the sake of simplifying, basically you stop to think, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. yes, of course, I have my default play standard quote quote lines, but there's always going to be a couple of hands that don't want to take the standard line. Right, mm -hmm. it's like ah, usually I do this, but with this hand though, or versus this player, or on this on this particular texture, I probably am not gonna accomplish the same as what I would normally accomplish in my baseline strategy. But with this hand, I would like to go a bit bigger, or actually, usually I check range, but this specific hand, maybe I'll bet. Right. I, I like that you use the word accomplish because I use that a lot in my own thinking. Um, what does my hand achieve? Like, what does my hand accomplish when it bets? Like, what happens when I bet this hand to his range? What types of hands does he fold? What types of hands does he raise? What types of hands does he call? And when you start thinking like that of like, 
what how does my hand perform as a bet compared to perform as a check compared to perform as an overbet? Uh, that really helped me. That that it was another type of epiphany for me. Yeah, I think asking yourself the right questions. I remember when I do uh, hand test reviews with students, it always comes down to like, okay, buddy, let's let, let's go back to the basics. What are you trying to achieve with your hand? Yeah. And out of that, like a solver, right? The solver is trying to achieve something. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's trying to achieve a certain outcome. Then yeah. it's up to you to figure that out. Like, okay, he tries to, you know, he has certain he has certain equity and he, he chooses the highest EV strategy. And it's up to us to figure out, okay, why is this so high EV? That's, um, yeah, I agree 100%. And some people, I'll talk to some people about whatever poker theory or solvers and you'll look at an output from a solver and you'll be like well that's just like the solver being a solver and i'm like no like there's a there's a reason for there's a reason why it's betting king jack with the king of spades 75 percent of the time and betting king jack without the spade 25 percent of the time like there's a reason it's not always human knowable like you can't always think of yourself like oh i'm gonna know this very intricate weird blocker effect on the river but there's there's always a reason yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that you then have the opposite camp, which is like, okay, it does that, so I have to do that as well. Randomize, randomize, randomize. But I feel like you have to kind of find the sweet spot in the middle mm-hmm. and be like, mm, is this actually a returning thing? Let me check. Hey, it's actually a returning thing. Okay, I don't mm-hmm. understand this. Why? Right? Because sometimes, yeah. indeed, when, when people say a solver is going to be a solver, you have some random stuff in the solver sometimes that is, sure, sure. goes against what you thought was true, but it happens one in 20 textures and then you're like yeah okay it probably has something to do with a specific range or yeah like we we cannot we cannot do exactly everything perfect yeah it's not always human achievable but there is always a reason why it's doing it and it's not i should i should i should change that it's not always worth implementing or trying to implement in your game and it's not always practical to think that you could replicate that in like a real game um but there's a reason why I did the solver thing because it, it always has a reason because it's just <laughs> it's just a, a solution. Yeah, and I think you still have to be curious for those because maybe you'll learn something that has nothing to do with that exact hand in that spot, sure. but you'll learn something in a different spot, right? Yeah, I was I was looking at a river spot recently where we would bluff like every hand on the river on the runout, except we wouldn't bluff like uh, king nine with the nine of hearts. It was like a big blind versus small blind three bet pot. And it was because on the turn, the solver would call only the pocket nines with the nine of hearts. And it wasn't like intuitive why. So on the river, you know, he would have more folds with the nine of hearts, but it was like a slight small difference. And it was like, that was the only reason I could see. And that stuff like that's not practical and it's not worth, you know, trying to implement. But then you have more overarching things like not barreling the turn with the flop backdoor flush draw. Um, that was a, another revolutionary concept for me. Just like simple blocking effects, um, they have big impacts on your game. Yeah, exactly. Right. You have to understand not that King 9 is a give up, but why is King 9 a give up? Right. And then we go back to the turn. You said, okay, he exactly calls uh, the 9 of hearts. So. We're not blocking the calls, but we're actually blocking the folds on the river. That's why we mm-hmm. don't want to bluff the nine of hearts. Exactly. And it's still up to you to, to decide, okay, this is a broader concept. And apparently I have to ask myself on the river, am I blocking his folding range? Exactly. If the case is yes, I should be less inclined to bluff, right? Exactly. That's kind of what you try that's, to take 
from that's the, solver. the exactly exactly that's like the overarching thing that you should try to learn from that spot um the spot specifically was tough because it was calling like all the pocket nines but it was just calling the ones with nine of hearts like 10 percent more which is a big impact in a range that has mostly pocket nines by the river yeah and that's a concept that whatever board you take whatever situation most probably that situation will apply yeah. does that mean you actually have to go to the river in a solver and copy what it does no you have no. to think okay am i indeed yeah. blocking the folding range that's usually not a great idea because statistically it will <laughs> yeah. fold less right yeah it's just written in stone yeah exactly and but then think... again you might be against a player who folds who overfolds right and then we might suddenly want to bluff it again because sure. he's still folding even though we have the worst blocker we might still want to bluff because he's overfolding right sure so that's why the... it's never a concrete answer absolutely um yeah if you want to get into exploitative play like it gets even way more complicated like way 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 more complicated of course do you like to get into the exploitative uh, exploitative territories or are you like uh, more i so, we had uh, ben a bit beat on the the previous episode who was more like no nah, i'll stay i'll stay in my own range try to yeah. play as solid as possible let them make mistakes and not get into the into the leveling wars so i've talked to ben about this um a bit uh we're on the same page basically in my approach to the way that I play poker is very similar to his, where I just try to play solid. I focus on my own strategies. Um, I try my best to play at whatever I think the equilibrium would be. Um, there are, like, I have such a big sample at 500 Zoom now that there are some players, without going into some detail, that I do do a few things that aren't technically allowed. But it's very few and far between. And another reason for that is that, um, you know, I... I to, in order to have like the highest win rate at 500 zoom, I think you need to exploit. You need to dig deep into what your opponents are doing, what the tendencies are, what the pool tendencies are. Um, you're just not going to achieve a very high win rate unless you do that, I think. Um, but that was never my goal. Like I, I wanted to move up on online poker as well. Um, so I just focused on trying to get better because you know learning how to exploit a guy at 500 zoom doesn't help you move up to 2K and L. Yeah. It this is, a, this is a very interesting point. Like knowing your long-term goal, right? And trying to do the right things that will get to, the, get, get to that goal faster. Maybe focusing on exploiting that guy fully on 500 Zoom would give you a higher win rate at that moment. But your goal is not to have a highest win rate at 500 Zoom. You want exactly. to reach high stakes as soon as possible. Yeah. So you might sort of, you know, play less, less EV at that exact moment to have higher EV in the future because you will move up faster. Exactly. Yeah. And I always went to that mindset with online because my mindset for online was always I'm going to play online to improve. So when I play my bigger games, I, you know, I have a, a better strategy. Um, then it kind of changed because of COVID. But now live poker is back. So not in Canada, unfortunately, but, you know, I can travel to the States and play live poker. Um, so, yeah, my goal was never to have the highest win rate at 500 Zoom. Exactly. You just use it as a as a station in between. Yeah. Because it's it's very tough. There's a, a lot of good players, and like the rake is very high. I think the rake is three BB per hundred over my sample. So it's it's a tough game. Um, yeah, like even if even if you're playing against regs who you you think whether it's true or not, but if you think you're better than them, it's tough to beat them for a lot of BB per hundred unless you're actively exploiting them, uh, which again I wasn't doing. Yeah, this is also the thing, right? People sometimes get a bit obsessed about, I want to beat 500 and I'll zoom. And I mean, if that is your 
ultimate goal, right? Yeah. If, if you reach yeah. that, you feel very satisfied that I almost do it. But sometimes I have people, they only play 500 Zoom. And then afterwards, they complain about low win rate and that they're not making enough money. I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. pick, pick a goal here, right? There's there's 2K or 5K games out there yeah. that are way softer than the games that you're playing. Mm -hmm. So then at some point also, uh, you know, I, I think in poker, you can improve in many, many, many forms. I mean, Adam is here. He helps players on their mental game, on their performance, which will have a big impact on your winnings as well. But the same is like, yeah, certain game selection, right? maybe you should try to find different games in the 5-0 Zoom pool if you're not happy with your winnings, right? If you're just doing it, as you said, for the competitive aspect, trying to get better, and, you know, it's it's very convenient, right? I mean, mm, I also convenient. like Zoom. You sit down, you start at the tables, that's all you have to worry about. Yeah, I yeah, personally he... play on, like, four sides, so I'm constantly lobbies, closing, opening tables, so I have to divide my attention. But the what thing... I get in return is better games or higher money. Yep, that's true. Like if you're willing to specifically for online, but in live game live games as well, like the per the player who's more versatile and more willing to try different games or play different areas is gonna make more money long term, I think. The other thing with Zoom is I know you stream and I think Zoom is a much better format for streaming because you don't have to close tables and reopen tables and it's so much easier to stream when you're playing Zoom. You just put up the tables and go. Like unless the pool breaks, you're you yeah, can just yeah. play. You don't have to worry about closing and reopening tables. But yeah, yeah like, I mean, you know, you only have a limited amount of attention. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. More tasks, exactly. your battery will run out faster. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I think that in terms of raw money, playing 500 Zoom as your like only game would be a financial mistake for sure. Like, because if you can beat 500 Zoom, you can beat some of these 1K, 2K, like you know. 2K NL, 1K NL, you can probably beat some of those games. So just table select those while you have a few tables of 500 Zoom is going to make you a lot more money than just, I play 500 Zoom, that's all I play, this is what I want to do. Um, unless that's your goal, unless unless that's something you want to do for the competitive side, I guess. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Maybe you want to be the best 500 Zoom player. So that was like your only point of improvement for Mr. Carl. <laughs> sure, Mr. Carl, I remember he only played 500 Zoom. Um, I mean, he did occasionally play normal tables, but yeah, yeah, definitely. But maybe his goal wasn't wasn't strictly financial. Again, yeah, no, exactly right. You have to figure out what your goal is and take actions that are in line with those goals. If after you think you reach what you wanted to reach and you're like, oh, I'm not happy, then apparently you did something wrong. This podcast is brought to you by Poker Ambition, where me and Adam have created our coaching program, The Mechanics of poker after having reached high stakes poker ourselves we tested out this philosophy on our cfp students which saw them rise through the ranks and double their win rate we then took the best knowledge of that cfp program and turned it into the mechanics of poker so you can have that high quality content without the long-term commitment and often hefty price that comes with a cfp program now I will be teaching you the technical side of how poker really works, how to think about the game and how to consistently get better. And Adam focuses on the mindset and performance skills you need to know in order to convert all that technical poker knowledge into more consistent profits at the table. Now this program is high level. It's made for professional poker players who have the ambition to break free from mid stakes and move up to high stakes poker. 
So if you're ambitious about your poker goals, go over to pokerambition.com for more information. And there you can also find a free one hour demo of everything that is inside the program. If you have any further questions, don't hesitate to reach out. But without further ado, let's get back to more goodness in this episode. Yeah, I'm interested to know where your mindset's at right now in terms of what's your next direction. So you went from obviously playing live very successfully, COVID forced you online, you've done very successful there. And now the live games in America in particular are starting to reopen. Where are your where, where are you getting driven in terms of where you're gonna focus your attention on? Yeah, so I'm going to split my time between playing online in Canada and playing live poker in America. So as a Canadian, you get six months out of the year in the US. Um, that's basically your limit. So I, I'm not gonna spend the entire six months out of the year there, but I'm gonna spend some amount of time playing live poker in the States. Uh, hope I'm hoping that games come back to Canada, but it's not looking good right now um where i live anyways what impact do you think your last year and a half of playing online will have on your live game uh depending where i play i mean i'm gonna feel a lot more confident in my in my abilities and like depending on which games i play because uh, a lot of games in vegas can be really tough sometimes even the live games especially during the series um but yeah the the impact is uh, i'm a lot more confident i would say yeah one thing uh, you said in the questionnaire we asked you was uh, you need talent in order to have success. And I thought it was an interesting uh, answer, especially when we looked at your background and it took quite a long time to uh, to get to the higher stakes. And also what you've told us today with your relentless approach to studying when you uh, had to transition to the online games. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the talents you think that you had that allowed you to have success in poker? And why do you feel like talents can have a prerequisite for success? So maybe i didn't answer that question completely true because like yes one person who has let's say a person has zero talent but they work you know a thousand times harder than someone who has super raw talent but they don't work very hard they can eventually you know overcome them but in all practical purposes the people who have natural talent are going to learn quicker and become better quicker um one of the main i don't know if it's really a talent but i have a really good memory and I have a good ability to remember concepts that I learned. So I just, a lot of the information that I was studying, I learned a little bit quicker than I think someone who doesn't have a good memory would learn. But I don't have a good poker talent. Like my intuition for poker and just playing poker and trying to Jedi mind trick people is awful. It's uh, the, the, only, the only good strategies I've ever gotten from poker have been from studying uh, GTO play. I've never been able to like have a good intuition, be like, I think this guy has this. I'm going to call. I'm always wrong. <laughs> yeah. So you doubled down on your memory skills, and that's why you went deep into learning. And was memory always a strong point for you at school and growing up? Do you always have, always have a strong memory relative to your peers? Um, I'd say so. I think that I've been lucky in that regard uh, and being a good learner. I think that if you're a good learner, you can do a lot of things. And um, I think if you're a good learner, you can overcome any talent deficiencies that you have, um, which is kind of contradictory because you can learn to be a good learner. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, I think it goes into having like a growth mindset as well compared to a fixed mindset. The growth mindset's always learning, looking for ways to improve. And just they're always open-minded that they can learn. So like you said, if you think you can become a good learner, you can. If you mm -hmm. think you can't, also you can't. So uh, 
Yeah, for yourself, do you feel like you've always yeah, had a growth yeah. mindset? You've always been someone who improves. Um, and yeah, with that, because I'm trying to figure out early on your career when you were playing the micro stakes, I'm trying to figure out like how it's been such a massive transition from like that part of your life to now, where it feels like you love learning, you love strategizing, you love solving problems and learning. Why do you feel like early in your career, you didn't apply yourself in the same way? Was it just life circumstances weren't, weren't in the right place? Or what, what do you think held you back early compared to, to where you are now? I think at the time, I thought that me playing was learning. I thought like, because when you play StarCraft, how do you get better at StarCraft? You, you play more StarCraft. Like chess, there was some off-tables work, you know, you study books and everything like that. But I, I just was wrong and mistaken. And I would think that the more I played, you know, the better I'd get. Um, I didn't have the right tools or a group of people to point me in the right way. And I also didn't have the motivation and like, I wasn't willing to apply myself, I guess. Um, whereas like I was addicted maybe to enjoying playing poker, whereas I should have been looking more towards, you know, how I should be playing poker. Yeah. You almost like didn't know what you didn't know. And ego as well, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so when you run into a problem now, how do you try and solve it? Do you try and solve it yourself, studying in the lab? Do you reach out to a peer group? What's your kind of way of solving problems from a strategy side or for just uh, from things you run into in life as well? Yeah, I have a group of people, like a dedicated group of people that I study with. Um, so yeah, if I if I encounter you know something, like what do you mean by problem? Say you have a strategy problem or say you experience a downswing at the stakes you're playing and just you're struggling at an obstacle okay. in your career and you can either try and figure out yourself or you can reach out to somebody who's maybe had a similar experience or they've got a some insights that you could could learn from yeah so first regarding strategy it's definitely talking with people and then working it out in the lab um and then for downswings and like mental game aspects i don't have like a dedicated a dedicated group of people for that like my group is more of just talking about strategy um but for that i don't know that i still struggle with that's the hardest part of poker is the mental game aspect um because it doesn't matter how successful you are it doesn't matter if you've you've made money from poker in the past what happens now always feels different it's always like oh this is awful i'm running so bad i'll never win again but you know you, you kind of inject logic into yourself and you try you know you try your best to i don't know mentally overcome that yeah what are some of the mental obstacles you've run into recently? So yeah, like you said, it's one of those things where even when you've had a lot of success, you have a downswing, the mind just blows it up to this big deal, like this is the worst thing ever. So for yourself, what are some of the obstacles you ran into from a mindset yeah. perspective in the recent months, to the last six months or so? So I've been lucky the last six months, like even though, um, even if I go on a downswing, I think more recently I've been okay with dealing with the financial aspect of the downswing, like even mentally, it's just, I find myself frustrated sometimes while playing um, when you just, it's kind of like entitlement tilt, where if you lose a spot where you think, you know, someone has played bad or something like that, I find myself getting angry um, sometimes. So yeah, I guess dealing with entitlement tilt has been the the struggle that I've been dealing with. Yeah. And how does that affect your game when you are having that entitlement tilt? I think I'm relatively lucky in the sense that it doesn't really affect how I play, but it affects my mood a lot, which is very negative. I'd rather it affect my play than my mood. <laughs> yeah. 
And how do you get yourself out of those moods when poker is affecting you? How do you find that balance away from the tables? Uh, exercise helps, definitely. Um, yeah, just just getting away from the tables. Like it always it always calms down. Your mind always calms down away from the tables. Like you know, take a take a moment to take yourself out of that situation. You know, inject some logic into yourself, and then yeah, move on. Yeah, you mentioned exercise there. Have you always been someone who's used exercise as a tool to uh, change your state? No, absolutely not. I I started exercising at the beginning of COVID. I was very, very um, not physical up until then. And then I just decided to, to do that. I lost maybe 60, 65 pounds during COVID. Wow, amazing. How wow. did you do that? Did you go to the gym? Yeah, I just, uh, no surprise, I did it through diet and exercise. <laughs> How has that impacted your life, would you say? Oh, it's so much better. That's the the best decision I've made in terms of my health, aside from quitting smoking six years ago. So yeah, it's the second best decision I've made regarding my health. So COVID for you was this really kind of positive transition time where obviously a lot of things were forced on you, but for whatever reason, you went into this very proactive mode. So what do you think happened with COVID? Obviously, you were forced to play online. Why was that the moment that you decided to go to the gym and lose weight? Because a lot of people stopped going to the gym around that time. A lot of people made excuses why now wasn't a good time. So why was that a catalyst moment for you? Yeah, I wish I wish I could pinpoint exactly why, because then I could apply that in other other aspects of my life. It's it's tough to know. I don't know. I just found some sort of motivation to to um to do that. And then motivation is fleeting. So then I found discipline to just keep doing it. And yeah. I wish I knew. <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's just about deciding. We make a clear decision that we're going to change for whatever yeah. reason and yeah, stick into it. So yeah, amazing. Well done on losing that much weight. It sounds like it's had a big impact on your energy levels, your health, and how you feel. So that's a great, great win. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to transition to... Uh, definitely would recommend it to people. So yeah, I think as well as poker players... If you, like, learn, if you learn anything from the podcast, it's... Uh, have more money and lose weight. There you go. Yes. Yeah, have a good bankroll so there's no financial pressures and be in great shape so you've got loads of energy. And yeah, I think it, it is important to have a, some form of outlets outside of poker and generally a physical outlets great because as a poker player, you go through a lot of stress. There's a lot of things that are just difficult to deal with intellectually and you just want to get away from the poker tables. I feel like having a physical exercise practice allows you to do something that gets you completely out of your poker mindset and often recharges your state. So you come back from the gym yeah. or a run, and you're like a new person. It's like a reset. It's like, oh, back to reset button, pressed. It gives you this Absolutely. kind of long-term energy levels. Yeah. yeah, that's a great way of putting it. It is kind of like a reset, like a mental reset. I think yeah. it was, um, I was listening to Jay Nandez, if you know who Jay Nandez is, um, poker player, uh, PLO player. And he was talking about how, I think it was him, maybe I'm, I'm going to attribute something to him that wasn't him, but he was talking about how uh, humans crave like linear progression. We, we, we crave progression. And in poker, like while, while your skill level can be a linear progression, the amount you win in, in, your, in, in your poker career is never a linear progression. Like it's always, you know, up and down, up and down, up and down. And it feels kind of bad sometimes. Um, so having things in your life that aren't poker that you can linearly progress in kind of help your mental state, which I agree with for sure. Love so that. Like working out or learning a skill, learning a language, learning a skill, learning an instrument, you know, something you can just 
visually and, and mentally and, and realistically see yourself improving at. Love that. Yeah, I think that's very like an important human drive to uh, have a linear pursuit where you're making progress in something. And it would be great if poker was that straight line, start to finish linear progression. But often there's going to be yeah. these ups and downs. So yeah, I think pairing poker with something that does have a linear progression, like learning your skill. For me, it was always going to the gym and lifting weights and putting more weight on the bar, increasing my lifts. So this progressive overload, which I controlled. So my poker graphs going up and down on a roller coaster. At least I'm in the gym, putting an extra kilogram on the bar that day. And that puts the mind at ease. Or at least it feels like exactly. I control some variables and I make a progress in the area of my life, which I deem as important. I think having that as a poker player is really important. Yeah, I think control in the uncontrollable world of poker is important. So I want to transition to you starting your YouTube channel and you doing your Play and Explain videos, which are super popular, amazing to watch on your Help Me channel. If anyone hasn't seen that, make sure to check it out. What was the motivation behind uh, creating content on YouTube? Uh, to learn. To learn. Because when you, post, when you post something, you're accountable and you have all of the uh, chat pros that go in the comments and you know, tell you whether you've played good or bad, uh, whether they're right or wrong. And it, it kind of like it's a good way of reviewing your play and yeah to learn and also motivation to play because when i post a video and you get that feedback um it motivates you to improve and to play more um so yeah motivation and learning are the two reasons that i started that uh definitely not money uh you can't really make money from doing stuff like that <laughs> and what are some of the lessons that you've learned during that journey and i've been doing about a year now um Lessons, like as a general sense, yeah. um, I'm not quite. I'm not quite sure. I learned. I learned a few specific things, like um, just from making mistakes in the video. Because like, the best way to learn is is to make mistakes. But the only way that you can learn from the mistakes is if you know you make the mistakes. So if you're just reviewing your own game all the time and you're looking at things that you think might be mistakes, you're just gonna find the things that you thought were mistakes. The real mistakes are the ones that you did and you thought it wasn't a mistake. You're like, oh, no, this is fine. Like, I did that. Like, I'm not even going to check that. But then if you correct those, you're going to be a way more well-rounded player. So just like little things like that, um, learning from my mistakes, I guess, would be the best lesson. Yeah. So it sounds like it highlighted some of your blind spots, things that you weren't aware of. And then people will call you out in the chat. Yeah, exactly. Blind spots. Hands. That's a good way. Yeah. And Rene, I know you've Sure, been yeah. And you like whether they're right or wrong, like yeah, exactly. They always gonna call you out on any small mistake. Uh, Ready? I know you went playing uh, on YouTube yeah. as well, and you've been streaming your sessions. I think you compared it to uh, playing naked or like expose yourself naked in public, being able to uh, expose your game like that. So yeah, you want to talk about your experiences playing uh, streaming and how you found that process as well? No, I can de I can definitely relate with with Jeremy. You feel a certain extra. Yeah, I, I don't really want to call it pressure. It's more like, yeah, you're going to be extra critical. I personally love chat pros as well because I've definitely had people in the chat say something like, hey, wouldn't this be a better play or something? And some people, you know, are quite extreme. This is just horrible. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. What, what am I going to do with that piece of information? But then still I'll, I'll reframe it. Like, okay, was this horrible? You know, I always try to try to learn from it. And over, over all the Twitch hours that I make, there's definitely been people who are like, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, I, I would have, I would have liked to see your rate. There's, there's one guy who always comes back sometimes, and then it's like he comes with a very analytical answer. And then he says, last time he said, 
I've been following you now for the last couple of months. I see you've made a lot of improvements. <laughs> like, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> but I do still think there are a couple of these river race spots where you elect to call instead of race. For example, the hand you played 15 minutes ago. And then actually there were a couple of good points where I was like, actually, that, that is indeed a good point. I should have, should have considered racing there. I didn't. Yeah. So thank you very much. But indeed, I, I, I compared it. I don't know how Jared saw this, like your first videos. I tried to go back in your YouTube channel. I could go back, I think, one year, but it's at yeah, episode I removed, 15, so I'm sure. I removed sure. all the videos that had uh, the HUD showing. Ah, all right. It, it was because of that. Did, did you experience the same thing? I, I Exactly what Adam just said. I, I compared it to you go on stage, you take off your clothes, you say, hey, man, no, this is because, it. This is what I'm working yeah, with. Yeah, it's a little bit, but did it's not the same, the same as streaming because if, uh, if I truly had something horrible happen in a session that I didn't want to show, I could always just not upload the video. But when you're streaming you're truly naked. Like you, you can't go back, like, unless you quickly cut it off. Cause there's a delay, like you're going to show everything. So to a degree, yes, but not as much as streaming streamings on a slightly different level, I would say. I mean, I, from personal experience, I could tell you could still switch sure, scenes, yeah, right? Yeah. You show table one, well, yeah, three, yeah, you're exactly. blundering your way a stack, for example. Right. Uh, I, I, or, or like maybe, you know, there's a play that, you don't really want to show. I've, I've had that sometimes, like, oh, this is a great you don't play show that, yeah. or something, but I don't want to have questions about it because I'm not even going to answer it. And then, I, sure. and then I just don't show it, for example, or very exploitative fault that I don't even want to get into, right? Then I then people yeah. would have maybe not even seen it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do understand what you mean for the uh, uh, for the extra motivation. I thought there were a couple of points in your, in your when you were talking to Adam that I thought was interesting, especially the... The COVID happened and there's indeed a lot of people that were like, oh, COVID happened. So now I can't do A, B, C, D, E. And with you, it was kind of the opposite, right? Which again shows COVID happens. It's something neutral. How we respond to that will kind mm -hmm. of determine where our life is going, right? I think this is a, if you have this quality, same with like how you approach online poker, tough games. Okay, this is an opportunity for me to grow. COVID is an opportunity for me to do this. Right? You see things as an opportunity, as a threat, which I think is a very, uh, a very important skill. Uh, you also talked about that you now see your mistakes. I want to kind of reflect on all the way early in your career, the first five years, yeah. you were only playing and never reflecting, right? Now you are willing to look at your game and look for mistakes, mm -hmm. whereas in the past yeah, you I didn't. Think, I think reviewing your own game and, and finding mistakes is like the most important thing. Um... Because like yes, you need to do the off-table study work and 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 learn the strategies. And yes, if you learn if you learn the strategies so well that you never made mistakes, good for you. You know, you're Linus Love. But if you can't do that, you're a normal human being. Then you got to look at your mistakes and where you're misapplying the strategies or where you're not doing it. And like finding the mistakes that you didn't know were mistakes is the best, I think. So how do we find the mistakes that we don't know is mistakes? database analysis or video review, um, re re reviewing hands that you haven't tagged. Yeah, I noticed in my, uh, in my CFP, instead of having them tag hands and discussing those, we would, for example, discuss a specific spot, Butterverse, Big Blind, and then next week's session, I would have them send over all their hands and I would just go over every Butterverse, Big Blind hand that they played of all my students. That's Quite a, time consuming, yeah. but... I would then pick yeah. out exactly these are interesting. Else they would not they would not have picked those. Right? Exactly. I think video review like, is perfect for that. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. Like when I have students, um, what we usually start with is a database review. And then if I see if any stats are deviated, I'll just go into the spot and do exactly what you just said, which is go through literally yeah. every hand if it's practical, if they don't have like a 10 million hand sample and just look at literally every hand. And then I will tag the ones that I think are mistakes. And very often they're like, oh, I didn't know this was a mistake. I didn't know this was a mistake. Yeah, no, we then we work very similar. I would look at their hot stats and be like, hey, this stat seems a little bit off. And, and you usually then, if you compare a couple of stats, you kind of see what their strategy is and what the flaw is. And then I'll go out and pick a couple of hands where it's like, yeah, you see, this is where you apparently have a wrong logic. Then I would usually have them yeah. explain the hand. I think this is a very important process. Like, explain yeah. me the hand why you played it this way, because I want to hear. I want to hear that flaw, right? Especially as a coach, I think mm-hmm. it's very important that you don't say you played this wrong. You should play it like this. Whereas, like, explain me what you think, and then I'll correct exactly where you go wrong in the hand. You have to fix the logic, not the mistake. Exactly. Yeah, to 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 have lasting change, right? Else the guy will just have yeah. like a, a whole list of like, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this. <laughs> and then he goes to play, and what does he yeah. do? He does it. Because yeah. we haven't fixed the correction, basically. So what do you think is holding most people back when they're not successful at poker? Because like you said, it can be a money constraint. Um, but I see a lot of people who they'll come in and, you know, they'll, they'll play and I think, wow, this person's really, really smart. And then I never hear from them again. And they just, they quit poker. Like either they're not interested or they just didn't succeed. Variance hits them. There's a lot of reasons. Do you, do you have any insights into what's holding new players back? So I can give a, I think it's best if I give an uh, answer more technical related, then I'll pass it over to Adam more mental game related. I mean, mental game related. We can, you you could answer this question in a million ways. Right, uh, uh, some sort of self-sabotage coming up. I think technically speaking, uh, maybe I always feel like um, there's various answers can be found in various areas, right? You can go into a solver and find the answer. But sometimes if you always do that and you stay stuck, apparently you're either doing it wrong, right? That That's one. Or the answer that you're looking for is maybe not in that corner. Maybe in order for you to progress, you should work on a more exploitative game, right? Maybe work with more database and analysis, uh, stuff, stuff like that. So I think looking for the answers in the same in the same section all the time, even though you're not finding the answer there, that could be, I think, from a technical perspective, uh, uh, a problem. But as you said, if you think they're very good players, but you don't see them anymore, I would say usually, mm. I have to not pass over the ball to Adam, I would say usually there's mentally something going on. Yeah, that, that's what I think. I think that it's usually a mental issue, mental game issue, rather. Yeah. Yeah. So we take an example of a talented player who comes to you for coaching and you're like, oh, this guy's got it. He's going to be great. And then he disappears off the radar. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of those players very often. They've got unrealistic expectations. Their ego is very fragile. So when they take a bit of a hit, they very quickly take that as a personal kind of sign that they're not good at this. Whereas I feel like they often struggle to have like a long-term perspective and committed to the long-term. So for example, like your mindset that you've got, Jared, is perfect for that person because they need to take a long-term learning model and they need to realize, okay, I'm going to take setbacks in the short term and I need to keep going. I find often those talented players, often they were talented yeah. in other things as well. So they, they've invested their identity in being good at something. So now when they make a mistake, rather than being a learning opportunity, it's now a judgment of them. And they're like, whoa, whoa, I don't want to 
too much of this. This is a bit scary. Mm -hmm. They often back away yeah, and yeah. try to make easy out of the plane. You ever had someone be really offended when you tell them that they made a mistake? Like you're coaching someone and then they get really offended. You're like, why'd you ask me for coaching then? Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like a judgment. It's almost in those players, you've got to almost be very careful with them. It's like, oh, I'm trying to give you advice here, but just realize it's just a mistake in your strategy. It's not you as an individual that's flawed in any way. But yeah, I think that's often the obstacle with talented players who are often obviously very smart, very capable. Like I think from a coaching perspective, we can identify these kind of talented players who uh, have everything capable of making yeah, good, good results and good careers. But yeah, very often I think that short-term entitlement and just that almost like inability to be curious and want to learn because they've, they're invested so much in their their identity and their current abilities, I think is a, is a common one. Yeah, it sounds like a classic fixed mindset, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think also like in terms of uh, motivation, maybe they're short-term motivated, like, oh, I want to see if I can do this. Then they, they then I did it. There's no more. They, they, they cannot really find new motivation, right? They had too much short-term goals. Uh, they're not in it for the long run. I also feel like if I can compare, uh, if I'm trying to think of like students who made it, students who didn't make it, maybe also being too... For example, I can watch your YouTube videos, right? And I can focus on, I'm trying to learn something here. Or I can look at what is Jared doing wrong and I'm going to point him out on that. It's I'm seeing the same video, but what I will actually get from it will be completely different. And I noticed in coaching, I had that as well, where I had some other guys that would say, okay, Mr. Wacker, so you're telling me I should do this and this, and this is going to work? Great. And they would relentlessly execute. Whereas you would have other, have other guys who would be like, they would always come with the yeah, but. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but, yeah. but, but. Mm -hmm. they're, they're trying to say, yeah, but in, listen, but in it's my not perfect. Pool. I know, but nothing is perfect, right? We're playing a game of incomplete information. We're all just trying to guess better than the other person of what we should do in that spot. Yes, this is not bulletproof, but hey, it's going to work 90% of the time. So I guess also really seeing the bigger picture instead of focusing on all the small nuances. And then they can they kind of get lost in the nuances and they find it very hard to translate their off-game game to in-game performance, right? So, like, mm -hmm. also a little bit of a little bit of confidence over perfectionistic, right? They might, they might, you know, in a in a coaching session you might have with a guy, you're like, oh wait, who's coaching? Who actually? This guy is this guy is brilliant, right? But then when he when he mm -hmm. goes to play, it doesn't come out because he's way too perfectionistic. He's way too analytical. Mm -hmm. Some people can be better at at talking about poker than playing poker. That's for sure. Yes, for sure. And actually, I, 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 can, I can see myself in that until a certain extent. I remember, especially in the past, people would, around me, they would hype me up, sort of. And it, I remember, this is like eight years ago or something, seven years ago, I would get very confused because I would talk strategy with guys who are making way more money than me. And I was always teaching them. But I was more of that over-analytical guy where they would listen to what I said and relentlessly apply it. I would have to first understand it 100% and I would be very careful. And then if it worked a couple of times, I would be like, ah, it's probably not working anymore, right? I would project like my knowledge <laughs> on the population. Now they probably figured this out before there was actually proof that that was actually the case. So I would do a lot of cool things, but for a way short, a very short period of time. And then like years from then, the other guys are still applying that and it's working great. Whereas I already thought, ah, people now caught up on that. So I guess this is yeah, also def definitely something that you see. 
yeah, like applying your thinking that your opponents know what you know is uh is definitely a strategy mistake, I think. Yes. It's it's I've I've have a little fix on that. I might share it for our listeners. Uh, what I what, what I would do because it, it doesn't happen all that often, but sometimes I can get into that mindset. I will have basically my hut, a print screen of my hut open on my screen. And then when I start to project, I'm like, this is me. This is my game, how I think about poker in stats. So if I would then look at someone else, that's like, we don't think the same about poker, right? Yeah, so we, exactly. I, I cannot project my knowledge on this on this opponent, right? So maybe yeah. a little tip that's... for online players. I think that, that, that really helps. That's a good tip, I think. Absolutely. Um, reflecting on on your nine year journey right what was the what was the main reason you think it took nine years instead of four and a half if we can narrow it down we already have money be healthy what was the main reason so, it took so long the reason it took so long was like the main reason was not approaching the game in the right way to begin with um which was just a combination of ego, maybe laziness, and um, lack of information, and not understanding what poker was really about, right? Not not owning people's souls. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, it's not about owning people. It's about playing good poker, good strategy poker, and that didn't come in until way too late into my poker career or whatever you call it. One. What was the one thing reflecting on it? that poker has brought you that you did not expect uh perspective on life like sometimes things go bad in life and if you have a good perspective on poker and that you know sometimes things go bad but sometimes things it always turns around in the end if you're if you're if you have a good strategy in poker sometimes things are bad but then at the long term it's going to be good so if you have a good approach to life and you're doing good things in life usually in the long term it's going to work itself out so it actually ended up giving me a bit of a positive attitude towards life, which I didn't quite expect. I would have thought the opposite. But again, that's just my, it's, it's about your approach to poker, not about like anything else, right? It's, your, it's the way that you interpret it. Exactly. And I think this is a, a missed opportunity for most poker players who kind of see poker as just this thing where for which they show up, they expect a certain hourly, they grind for hours and that's it. And whereas you really use poker as a certain a certain area where you can challenge yourself and really develop yourself. And I, I completely agree with that. I have I've always had the same mindset towards poker and everything that I learned uh, around being a poker player. I mean, there, there are skills for life. Sometimes people talk about, yeah, what if you would ever try to get a real job, right? That's like that old, uh, that old thing that people are afraid of. Actually, maybe it's still up until today where they're like, yeah, I have a gap in my CV and then I played poker. I mean, if you, it's all about how you, if you, do a future interview first it's about how you sell being a poker player right i mean there's yeah. many aspects that i can highlight that poker player has taught me that would do well in other areas as well and i personally always say if that if if the person that i would be applying for a job for does not think poker is a great background for a person to hire i probably don't want to work for that person anyway so yeah exactly kind of, like kind of, kind of two points there yeah and like, I just want to make one thing clear. Like I do have like a bit of a love hate relationship with poker. There are times where I'm thinking like, why did I choose this? You know, but those are, those are less so than the long-term thought of what I'm doing is something that I enjoy and I want to do. 
It's not all roses. It's not all sunshine and roses. Okay, so thank you for pointing out that you're human. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I am this human. Is, this there is, are for anyone listening, moments. this is number one rule. Like everyone experiences yeah. ups and downs, right? Exactly, exactly. Like if you're playing poker and you're like, oh, everything's not great for me. Like that's just life. <laughs> that's how you approach it, I okay. guess. Actually, it's funny because we're saying this now. And if I then think, yeah, but Lightus probably doesn't have that. That's a point that I got myself <laughs> in my mind. Does Linus have up and down as well? Does Linus sometimes doubt himself? Like, hmm, am I really, am I really that good? You think Linus doubts himself? Yeah, probably not. No, like I, I don't think so. Basically, we're asking here: Is Linus human? Yeah, like is he human? I guess, like technically, he is. I don't know him. I've never met him. <laughs> uh, any, any, any reflections on this, Adam? Yeah, I've just got a little segue question, which I think is would be a good at this stage. And it's what is the your definition of success at this stage of your life? I know you've been on a long poker journey, and it sounds like you're very uh, much treating poker like a almost like a way of leveling up yourself as a person, and you're enjoying the pursuit. So yeah, I think it'd be interesting to know uh, at this stage how do you define success in your life, and what's the kind of goal you're you're reaching towards? So success in my life, I define as improving myself and having a good daily life, like a life that I enjoy and I find at least relatively fulfilling. Um, I think that constantly learning and improving yourself is key. Otherwise, life starts to get a little bit stagnant. Um, success in poker, I think for me right now is defined as, um, again, continually learning. Uh, it's it's tough to to move up in poker, to have that goal. Like once you reach a certain level, like I'm trying to play 2K right now, and the skill gap between 2K and everything else is is very very high. Uh, so I do still have some goals in in strategy and and playing, but really the success is is built around, yeah, just trying to improve, I guess. Yeah, awesome. Does that also apply outside of poker for yourself? So if success model for you involves learning, growing, improving, do you apply that to uh, your health, to your relationships, or to uh, your life in a broader context outside of poker as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's very important. At least for me, it's it's very important to be improving in some way. Um, the the least good moments of my life and periods of my life were the times where I was stagnant or declining. And the best periods of my life have been when I've been improving and learning. So <laughs> empirically, what it's uh, I should keep learning. Yeah. I can relate to that as well. It's like my highest value is growth, which to me means improving, learning, and getting better at something. And every time in life where I've had a kind of rough patch or I wasn't enjoying what I was doing, it was always because I wasn't learning. I wasn't growing during that phase. And often like we talked about with kind of balancing poker with say it's health and doing a gym, a gym goal or doing something outside of it. If we're too one track minded or we go all in on something and then progression or learning in that avenue stops, it can create a lot of inner conflict, especially if learning or growth is one of your, your highest values. So yeah, I think it's it's really good to know that because it probably means your values are around learning and growth and we're all different. Some people's values are around family or health or relationships. And yes, it's good to know that you're a learner and learning is a big kind of part of your success model. So yeah, really, really good that you're in alignment with that. And it sounds like poker is the perfect vehicle for you to be able to take that on a daily basis and learn and improve. Yeah. And I'm sure if it wasn't the case, I'm sure if you got the point where you weren't learning, poker, that kind of love-hate relationship would get very 
hit oriented quickly. For sure. I'm very lucky with poker. I think all of us are who want to keep learning um, in that there's always something to learn in poker. And if you think that you've reached a point where there's not, then you've probably just, you're just wrong. Like there's always something to learn. It doesn't matter. Like if, if you really truly think that you've reached the point where there's nothing to learn, I think that's a, a personal leak because there's always something. Yeah, yeah I, feel, I feel like it's very counterintuitive, right? Basically, challenging yourself and pushing yourself is actually easier than not pushing yourself. Because if you would not be pushing yourself, you would stagnate, you would feel less energy, you would feel less motivated. Yeah. Then you, you will mm -hmm. play worse, you will get frustrated because you're playing worse. Whereas if you're challenging yourself yeah. and playing versus better players, which seems harder, but it actually gives... I, always, I like to always talk about energy. One grind costs energy. The other grind gives a lot of energy back. You're motivated. So I think it's, it's, it's really counterintuitive, but uh, I feel like definitely true. I, I can definitely relate to that strategy-wise as well. My poker feels, If poker starts to feel like a grind for me, it's because I'm not implementing new strategies. That's why I'm, in general, growth as well and creativity are definitely my main values. So in my game, you would always see creativity, even though it's not necessary. I should probably simplify if I start doing that, poker feels like a grind for me. I need I need bursts of creativity. Oh, I need to make weird plays. Okay. okay. I respect that. Yeah. My my plays are like the opposite, but I don't feel the need for creativity in my play. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And again, it's important to know yourself, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I remember, Rene, if uh, one of your kind of priming exercises for your session, you would write down things like, I want to have fun and I want to be playful. And that goes in alignment with your kind of wanting to learn and being creative. So is that something that, are those other values for you, having fun with what you're doing? Exactly. And it also, it, it reminds me of that poker isn't about, you know, that I have to win this session. It's about, oh, this is a great opportunity to express my creativity, right? To be curious, to look for spots at the tables that I don't even know are out there, Right. This is also helps yeah. you if you see other people make a play, it helps you instead of judging it for what, what is this? It's like, I'm curious for it. So I think curiosity for me is the, as soon as I, I always prime myself to be curious in my session, because if I'm curious in my session, I will, just like what Jared says, I will ask myself interesting questions out of which comes interesting answers, right? It's the question that you ask yourself that will determine what you're looking for. If you don't ask yourself mm -hmm. any questions, or if you ask yourself only, what do I do here? Yeah, you default back to like your default, but indeed what Jared also said, like what are the ranges, how's interaction, uh, you know, th these lead to different strategies. So the questions you ask yourself depend, kind of define the output uh, at the tables. Yeah, I think that's a good point about um, seeing a crazy play and instead of judging it saying, oh, maybe is there something there? Let's find out. I think that's the right mindset for sure. So going forward, you mentioned that you've been taking some shots and that there's a very big skill gap between 1K, 2K. I can definitely relate to that. There's quite a lot of players who play 500 to 1K, maybe shot some 2K, and then you have a couple of guys who just play 2K plus. Uh, so you will yeah. indeed face certain opposition. Um, what do you think, in order to make that jump, what do you think are some things that are still holding you back that you should improve upon? Um... Things that are holding me back that I should that aren't improvable are the amount of volume that you can play in those games. It's it's really tough to get a, a decent sample in those games. They don't run 
as often as other games. But things that are holding me back, like um, skill and improvement wise, uh, I wish I knew. <laughs> Could you tell me? I'm trying really hard to to learn what I need to know. If I knew that, I probably would wouldn't be held back, right? <laughs> good point. Good point. Um, yeah, I yeah, wish for I knew. Example, for, for uh, myself, I kind of have an idea of which areas in my game I can still improve upon. Uh, I still see myself making certain mistakes, and they those mistakes might have mm -hmm. a team that I'm working on, right? Like, okay, it's not necessarily yeah, okay. a lot of teams that I have are not necessarily technical mistakes, but they're kind of mental flaws that I can fall back into. It's like, oh, I did it again. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, without going into too much specifics on directly how to exploit me, uh, <laughs> I think using still like trying to understand river spots better and how blockers interact with ranges and why is still something I'm trying to improve on. Um, which again, like I'm trying to improve on every aspect of my game because again, I think every aspect of every poker player's game can always be improved. Every spot, every aspect. But um, that's the one that I think I'm struggling with the most. All right. And in terms of, uh, are there still like some uh, some bad habits that you sh know you shouldn't be doing, but you know sometimes that uh, that FPS takes the bad hold of yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Or does that very rarely happen play nowadays? Um, it doesn't happen nowadays. Yeah, I've gotten really good at that. Uh, I did it once in my trip to Vegas, where I did a fancy play, but it worked. So that was good. <laughs> That's dangerous. I yeah, haven't worked. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, you're like, oh, I should do this more often. I, I like, uh, yeah. it's a weird spot. I I donked the river. We had like 20k behind. The pot was like 2,000. And I donked the river. He raised me and I three bet jammed with the bluff and he folded a set apparently. But um, yeah, it was a very fancy play. <laughs> Was well, not a good play. Hey, it's I'm not a I mean, all I hear is donkey donkeys, and I hear people falling sets. Awesome play. <laughs> it's it a spot where he can't dude. have any. He 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 could not have any of the good hands. He could only like his his best hand was like maybe bottom set, and that's what he folded. So. Okay, you got you got someone to fold range. The EV of that play is, uh, yeah, is quite high. <laughs> I guess so, but I, I mean, it was like six ways. Also, there was. I've I've had a play long time ago. I played that hand where I also front dunked the river in a spot where it's like okay, I basically have no bluffs in this line, and he basically has to fold. And then after like two three minutes was live as well. He kind of open folded the the sort of nuts that he could have. So basically he was folding range. Those are those yeah. are just listen. But like those plays are great when you make them because you intuitively really feel like this is the moment. But where when when you go play cards yeah. with the wrong mentality, I'm like. Okay, I'm here to own people. Then you will suddenly be exactly. Like, hmm, exactly. Hmm, can I own people here? Like, that's exactly what I used to do. Is like try to create the spots like that. Whereas naturally, that spot would happen once a year. Exactly, and that so, yeah. and that is kind of the difference, right? Also, in terms of uh, live poker, you you were talking about that you're gonna kind of divide your time. Um, if you like your skill set for in order to play tougher games, live poker still needs to improve. Uh, I think the <laughs> this is going to sound really um let me try to find the right way to word this to play high stakes poker nowadays it's more about who you know and how you act than how you play um how you play poker is isn't relevant in terms of your strategy versus their strategy every every 
big game is basically private now. There's no public big games. So it's not people battling. It's how can I, you know, first of all, don't be a dick. You know, be a nice guy. Um, treat everyone with respect and just try to be fun at the table. Try to try to make it so people want to play with you, even if they think they're better than you or that you're better than them, which may or may not be true. Interesting. This, in, this indeed actually highlights another skill from a successful poker player, the ability to actually get to play in those games, right? Like we could call this like networking. Sure. Right? Sure. It's, 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 it's interesting. It's another, another aspect. Like becoming a successful poker player has various aspects. Like all the technical stuff that we talk about is only a part of it. But in the end, yeah, if you can print in those private games, right, where uh, maybe you're up against uh, qu quite a lot of, uh, a lot more recreational players. I mean, that's a great skill to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the, probably the person who's won the most money playing poker is not the best poker player. It's the person who plays in the better games. <laughs> yeah, sure. Dan Blazarian, Rick Solomon, whatever, right? Like the, these people have made probably way more money than Linus, let's say. Yeah, and here we are fighting small edges on 500ml Zoom. They must be yeah, laughing exactly, at us so exactly. hard. They, they, they literally are laughing at us. <laughs> yeah, they're like, what the hell are these guys doing? Yeah, I know. I... Any common common, common mistakes for, I think, I, actually, I don't know if our audience is mainly online. Is that any, any very common mistakes that you think our audience must be making when they transition from online to live? Give them a little tip. Um... Oh, when you transition from online to live. Yeah. Okay. So it depends what you're uh, the playing. The next question but... was going to be vice versa. So. Okay. Um, so live, it depends how high you're playing. Because if you're playing shorthanded live against really good opponents, it's the same game. Like, unless uh, the structure is different. But usually what you're talking about is people playing like micro stakes or low stakes online and then going to play 2-5 at their local casino. Um, and I think that like holding holding rigid ideas of what your opponent should be doing is the main mistake that people make when they're playing live. Like get that, get that thought out of your head. Like, well, my opponent should have this and this and this. And like, no, he doesn't. He has this. <laughs> he has nothing even close to that. He wasn't even thinking about that. He was checking out the waitress's ass. He doesn't know what range he has. Like just, just, just play your game. You know, like it's people, people try to do too much, I would say, and like attribute too much and try to implement too much. And it's, a lot of playing live low stakes is just playing like good, simple, solid poker. And wait for them to hand you over the money. They they usually do. They usually do hand you over the money. Like just, you know, just play good, play well. Again, there you go. Play well. Problem solved. <laughs> yeah, we've had a lot of good tips. This one goes within the yeah, a lot of good tips. Lose weight, you should exercise and diet. Yeah, exactly. Really good advice. I'm writing a book. And vice versa? Uh, so going from live to online, so let's say you're like a, a 5'10 grinder um, who beats 5'10 and you want to play some online. I think the transition from live to online requires probably a lot of work that they're not used to. Um, you, you need to study good preflop ranges, good theory, good strategies. You have to know at least the common spots. Uh, it's a lot different than playing live 5'10. Like, the, the, the raw poker skill required to beat live 5'10 isn't that high. Like, no offense to anyone playing live 5'10. Uh, but to beat, like, 200 
Zoom or like, you know, online one, two, two, five, you do need that raw knowledge. Um, so yeah, I was just say you, you need to put the work in. You do. You have to put the work in is the only way to do it. Yeah, whereas maybe in, in life, you know, if you indeed have if you have a certain talent for figuring out a couple of spots, but online, you know, the fundamental spots, they 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 will just eat you up, basically. Yeah. Even exactly. though you know you sometimes exactly. make a great play here and there, you know, your intuition is on here and there, it just doesn't make up for the mm -hmm. fundamental theoretical mistakes that you're con constantly making in smaller spots. Exactly. Exactly. You need to know the fundamentals. So what are your uh what are what are your goals and aspirations in poker going forward? Where where, where can we see you? Where, where where do you want to be in a couple of years? Uh poker wise, uh, I think where I want to be in a couple of years is like I said trans playing uh some portion of my time online, some portion of my time live. Uh, I'd like to be like stakes wise relatively where I am right now. Um maybe you know shotting 5k occasionally in good games online. Uh, but playing playing as big as I can get into live within reason, um, and yeah, that's that's where I'd want to be poker wise. I mean, hopefully I'm a a better poker player uh, in two years time. But yeah, like in terms of where I've where I've reached in poker, I'm I'm happy in 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 the stakes and the levels that I've reached. I don't think I'm going. My goal isn't to go much higher than what I play right now, basically. All right, clear. Any any final questions for our guest, Adam? Uh, I just want to ask, how was your Vegas trip? I know you've been in Wales, uh, Vegas for the World Series. How was that trip? Were you playing tournaments? Were you playing cash games? How did your trip go overall? Yeah, so the trip was a lot of fun. I played a bunch of tournaments. Um, I studied a bunch of tournaments as well, which again is fun because you know you're learning something new. Um, I lost a lot of money, but other than other than that, the trip was really fun. Uh, the poker, the the tournaments were good. They were fun. The fields were good. The cash games were pretty tough it was like all the people that you play with online were basically there which is you know during the series is what you expect there's a lot of european players there a lot of pros um i got into some of the bigger games some of the time and those were fun the games are usually good i didn't run good I, uh, but you know when you play only 500 hands it's it's tough to <laughs> it's tough to always run good yeah so you you uh See, I see you as someone who likes to learn lessons and you always take a positive angle from things. So uh, even though you lost money from Vegas, what was the biggest positive perspective you've taken away from that trip? Um, from that trip? I mean, I guess that <laughs> positive perspective. Well, I mean, other than I just had a really good time and it was a good learning experience for tournaments. Um, regarding, you know, losing money, it's just, it's it's at this point, it, it feels kind of part of the job. Although at one point, you know, I had lost, I had lost, enough money that it was uh significant to me like financially uh which is never fun right when you're on a trip but i ended up uh rebounding you know results wise and I, i ended up not losing as much but i was just while that was happening while i was losing so much i was proud of the way that i handled myself in that i still kept playing i kept playing my game uh didn't put me off too much like yes i was upset um but you're allowed to be upset when you're losing absorbent amounts of money i think uh it's just the way that you handle yourself afterwards which i was happy with yeah i think that's an underrated skill set as well like how taking pride in being able to deal with bad variants bad results and yeah it's been look back at yourself during that period and go 
you know what? I kept myself together. I kept showing up. I kept working through it. Yes, it was tough. Didn't like going through it, but to take pride in your ability to uh, go for adversity, I think it's a really, really big skill set. So uh, yeah, I like that lesson learned from your, your trip. Yeah. Yeah, being proud and having compassion. Absolutely. And like, if it happens again, I'll be, I'll be better equipped to, to deal with it now. Yeah, compassion towards yourself is, uh, is something that's very difficult for me to do. Um, what, but I tried to do. I'm curious, like if you play, if you go play live and you play very big, and then you go back to Canada and you play significantly lower. Like let's say, for example, you lost a lot in a 20k and L game. It's very hard to to make up for those losses playing max 2k online. How do you deal with that mentally? How do you switch? Yeah, so yeah, you have to get rid of the the mindset of winning it back. That's like the first thing you need to lose as a poker player is the mindset of trying to win something back. Like that money's gone. It's you don't have it anymore. You can't win it back. It's gone. Like there's no winning any money back. Like it's it's you let it on fire, it's gone. It, you forget about it. It's a lot easier said than done though. Uh it's very difficult to go back to the games after, you know, you're playing a game that has a $400 straddle sometimes and it's 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 tough, you know, you're playing with a buy-in the size of the straddle. Uh, but it's just again like that that money's gone it's it's a they're they're two completely separate uh universes and you have to keep them separate in your brain otherwise yeah you can't you can't grind it back <laughs> and this is the thing right realistic expectations because if your expectation is okay i'm going to try to win it back yeah. which is completely unrealistic and reality strikes you in the face yeah you will start tilting yeah yeah, absolutely. Maybe also like you're yeah. you're very you're a strategic lover, right? So it's not like you're necessarily gonna play to win it back. You you're gonna go play online poker because you know it's like oh I'm happy to go play online poker again because I have the strategic things that I'm working on. Maybe it's also mm -hmm. you, you still mm -hmm. see it a little bit more like that that you can get excited for the strategic and competitive aspect and life maybe a bit more. Hey, maybe I'll have a good payday today. Yeah. I wish I wish I was completely detached from the results and I could just focus on the strategy and analyze like analyze just the strategy because that's the part I enjoy um about poker obviously. So yeah, that that would be the goal is to is to focus on the strategy and like I'm going to go here and I'm going to play this to try to whatever implement whatever strategy and learn whatever strategy. So do you have any uh, any final thing? Final final thoughts. Um well thank you for having me. This was fun. Um I like the way, Rene, that you explain poker and talk about poker. Um, like, I watched all your YouTube videos, and I watch you stream sometimes. Uh, streaming, not so much, just because I don't watch Twitch that much, but I watched all your YouTube videos. And I like the way that you always uh, approach poker and, like, the way of the way of your, uh, what's the word, analytics, or the way that you analyze poker. Um, which is, of course, why I like to come on the podcast and talk things poker with you, and it seems like we have a lot of all three of us uh, similar approaches to like certain aspects of poker. Adam, I don't know your your background in poker. I know you, what you do currently now. Um, what, do you, did you come from like an online background, like a live background? Yeah, I played online heads up sitting goes from 2011 to 2017. So I went oh, from okay, like okay. fifteen dollars. Yeah, that makes sense. And moved and built your way up. Okay. So yeah, it seems like we all have kind of similar views on a lot of things in poker, but like I would say our play styles, Rene, are a lot different, which is interesting. Yeah, like a little bit. Like you're 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 implementing more things in your game than I am. I think I'm trying to simplify maybe a little bit too much at times, but um 
like obviously everyone's game is similar nowadays because if it's not you're losing money like you you can only do so many plus ev strategies but um mm-hmm. yeah i just find it interesting how people with like the similar approaches to poker can end up with different strategies and i think it i think it was you you said that creativity was a, a an important part of your life and the way you play poker and i found that really interesting because uh i wish i could find the thing that i need um and apply that to poker and just have it be a more fulfilling experience which it sounds like it is for you yeah again it's 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 it, but i i think for you it was also really the strategical aspect right where it's for me yeah it's, yeah exactly it's the strategic aspect as well but i think the biggest difference that i usually notice between me and maybe other other players especially like I would say newer school because I'm basically a dinosaur in poker, right? Uh, we, we, can call my, we, we can call myself that. Whereas in the past, I think creativity was really well rewarded because there was no solver, right? Yeah. You had to figure out, you had yeah. to come up yeah. with strategies. Uh, nowadays, exactly. like with solvers, I do still try to, instead of saying, hey, solvers, solvers are here now, the room for creativity is gone. I don't believe that. I think you can still play creative with a solver, for example, right? You can still be... Yeah. Be, yeah. be creative in that. And I think it's, again, the questions that you ask yourself, right? I Most players are really playing from a base that they, okay, own solid base, other people deviate, my strategy wins, right? Where I understand all that and I try to do that as well as possible, but I'm always looking for opportunities where I can deviate to make higher EV, right? That That is, that yeah. is still the thing that I like the most. Uh, sometimes I will yeah, overapply that's... it, right? But I'm still, I would still <laughs> call myself more of an exploitative player. That's fair, yeah. And I guess that's the difference that I'm describing between our games. So that's something that, you know, if I plan to play like 500 Zoom for long term, that's something I should start working on on my game. And I think that it, it makes you a lot more money than most people give it credit for. But it also makes less money than some exploitative people give it credit for. And it seems like you've hit kind of the sweet spot where you play a good theory strategy, but then also find these opportunities to deviate. Because if you go in with the the approach of like, I'm just going to play exploitative, I'm going to play exploitative, it ends up being like that Jedi mind tricks like you described. Yeah, and, and that's exactly, that's not at all the frame that I come from. I come from a frame, I'm going to yeah, play solid, exactly. right? I'm going to mm-hmm. play solid. I understand the GTO concepts. I do exactly. always have like general population tendencies and psychology, how people construct ranges and where I think unbalances occur top of mind. And then from there, I still still look at who is my opponent. Who is my opponent is always one of the highest questions that I have on my list. Whereas newer school players have that question very low on their list. I start with that yeah, question. Yeah, if it's even on the list. Because if, if the answer to that question is my opponent deviates a lot to the right, a lot to the left, that's going to... I want my train to of thought in the rest of the hand to have that highest in consideration. So I don't end up, you know, making some GTO hero call versus a complete nit, right? Yeah. That's exactly what I if, think, example, in my if, opinion, if, what people who's should my be opponent, doing. My opponent is Jared Man. I'm like, okay, Jared Man is pretty pretty solid player. So I'm a little bit more handcuffed, right, in terms of what I can get away with, what I'm going to do. So against you, for example, mm-hmm. I might just play, try to play more solid. Whereas if I see an opponent who's maybe a little bit less competent, uh, that, that, that's when I get in my element because I can do a lot of shit, right? Yeah, but the only reason you can do the shit is because you know how to play solid. A lot of people don't get that, that you exactly. need to learn how to play solid first and then you can do the shit. Because if you can't play solid, it's, there's no point. 
Like you need to have that GTO baseline and then you can exploit people. It's a big misconception that it's like exploitative versus GTO, but really it's just the same thing. It is the same thing. Yeah. Only the question yeah. that you have to have to ask yourself always, and that's the question I does theory, like the exact uh, outcome of theory, does it theory always applies? But exactly how how it applies, just like in a solver, uh, it does it. And I notice poker for me, I play worse. And it's least enjoyable when I go in the uh, mindset of, okay, what do I have to do there? And then, then the what is like solver. That's when poker is least enjoyable mm. for me. It's also not, I would say, my pure strength. And then creativity gets lost and I play worse, right? Where yeah, every time when I go absolutely. back, okay, what am I trying to achieve my hand? And then when I say, what do I have to do? What does the wacko, what would the wacko do? And then, then, sure, and then yeah. sort, of, sort of the magic comes, you know? Yeah, when I personally, when I stop thinking in terms of, okay, what would the solver do? And more in terms of why is it doing this? Therefore, why should I be betting this here? That really helped my game. So yeah, I agree. Do you, do you still notice sometimes that you fall back in, in, in like, what does the solver do patterns? Uh, when it comes to choosing bet sizes on the flop... Yes, because that is that is a little bit of memorization. I don't think it's super intuitive mm -hmm. to know like which bet sizes are good on which flops unless you've looked at a sim. Um, but other mm -hmm. than that, no, I, I've I've been pretty good lately in in deciding what to do for good theory reasons rather than deciding what to do because I remember that the solver did this one time. And I find that it, it's improved my game a lot. For me. I asked that question for you, how to get higher. For me, it's to think like that more consistently. I, I, I'm not happy with the amount of time that my mind still goes to too much theory type of stuff. So that for me mm -hmm. is a, a room of improvement. Even though I'm, a, I'm an absolute advocate of not doing that, I still feel like percentage-wide, I do that too often. And I would say almost all my mistakes are related to that. And also the misapplication yeah. of theory as well. Yeah, misapplication is the most dangerous thing. But yeah, that's like over applying uh, a certain concept. Yeah, definitely. You got to be careful when you learn new concepts in poker. You have to um, realize that it doesn't always apply to every single situation. Like I remember when I first learned. I know we're going back a little bit, but here, when I first learned about overbetting turns, I would just overbet every turn all the time. My turn C bet was like 80% or something. I was like, that's it. Haha, <laughs> we can, it's a turn we can overbet. I'm overbetting. I, I didn't care what it was. Yeah, you're, you're so fixated on the EV of the overbet that you forget to take in consideration the EV of the other options, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or why we're overbetting <laughs> and why we're allowed to overbet. Yeah, and then you start to get blind for, for the other opportunities. Exactly, exactly. You get too fixated on one thing. All right, well, Adam, if you don't have any final questions or if Jared doesn't have any final words, then I think we're going to round it up here. No final words. They're both very Sounds silently good. looking okay. at me. No final words. <laughs> okay yeah well jared i really want to thank you for coming on also thank you for all the nice words about the uh about my content i really appreciate your content too shout out again youtube help me go check him out great play and explain videos really has a very good way of explaining i think everyone would learn from that a lot so go check that out
Well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Adam, it was nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. You too, Rene. Nice. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Wow, what a great conversation that was with Jared, man. A lot of goodness in there. Very curious about your takeaways, Adam. Yeah, that was a great conversation. And yeah, there's so many amazing takeaways that hopefully the audience picked up on. One of the main trend lines that I got going through that whole conversation was Jared's ability to turn obstacles into opportunities. He almost has this kind of superpower to reframe everything as a learning opportunity and something he can get better from. And as a result, he doesn't put pressure on himself in the short term. He doesn't get as involved in results because he's always trying to learn and improve. Some of the main obstacles that he turned into opportunities were COVID striking and the live games ending, so to speak. And he went straight online and studied like crazy. He realized, wait a second, these live, these online games are way tougher. The lower stakes, put his ego to one side and studied really, really hard to start beating those games. Rather than that being a negative thing, he reframed it as a positive thing to learn, improve, and get better. During that time as well, he managed to lose 60 pounds and get himself in great shape and treat his health and fitness as a main goal. Again, most people at that time were missing gym sessions and getting out of shape. So again, obstacle turned into an opportunity. And very often, he would back himself to be able to learn. He treats himself as someone who's got a good memory and he's a lifelong learner. And every time he got pushed into a corner where he had to learn the online games or change the situation, he would back himself in his ability to learn. And he backed it up with hard work as well. So it wasn't just like a kind of wishy-washy approach. He put in the work and studied hard to get through those obstacles. Another thing I thought was very interesting was when he talked about in Vegas, losing some money in the live games, some of the bigger stakes, and then coming back to the online games. And you asked him about how challenging that is to play a lot lower online compared to live. And how do you kind of win the money back, so to speak? And he quickly went, you've got to forget about winning it back. You've got to forget the mindset of regaining your losses. And that's such a powerful lesson for poker players overall. Forget about winning back. It's all like you're starting fresh on a new day, on a new slate. When you're on a downswing, rather than trying to win that money back, start from a fresh graph, from a fresh perspective. I've never really heard someone say completely forget about winning it back because it's, it's such a normal part of poker conversations. So uh, yeah, so many lessons learned from him there. I thought he was a very, a very thoughtful guest. And I was just surprised as well how long it took him to get from the micro stakes. But as we drilled into it, we could see he said it was laziness, his ego, but also like just not knowing what to do. Just didn't know how to approach poker. But once he figured it out, once he read some books and got directed, all of a sudden he was off to the races and his skill of learning started to kick in and he was able to keep progressing. So yeah, so many lessons I could have um, expanded on, but they're the main, the main ones I'll take away from this conversation. How about yourself, Rene? What were some of the main, the main lessons you learned from Jarrett? Yeah, it was in interesting that you talked about uh, in that five years that he was basically recreational, right? He couldn't win and that it had everything to do with he came there to try to own people's souls, right? He saw Tom Dwan do it and he's like, this is what poker is about, about making that fancy, fancy play. And then basically the book taught him to, listen, you should play solid strategies and then players make mistakes and you make money, right? And now later down in his career, he did say that he sometimes throws out some FPS uh, I, lo I love the hand that he played where he said like he dunked, he re-raised the river, he couldn't really have anything. You know, that gets my heart going. But he now knows when to time it, right? That's a very big difference. Also, uh, necessity also came back quite often. 
right? When the necessity was there, he would deliver. And he would actually actively look for necessity, right? He would raise necessity. I read a book once, I think it was from Brandon Burchard, where he talks about high performance habits and their six habits. And I wrote, know that one of them is raising necessity. And you could really see that coming out with Jared. Uh, so yeah, some other great stuff, of course. Let's not forget, if you want to lose weight, you should exercise and eat healthy, right? There were, yeah. <laughs> there were yeah. a couple of very good ones in there. Also have some money, have a good bankroll, so you don't have to worry about uh, results. And also play good poker. I think it's another good lesson that we got. Yeah, play well, right? There was well. also a very, yeah. very good wisdom. A lot of wisdom. A lot of wisdom with Jared. Yeah. Really great, great player. I love to play with him as well. Really competent guy. Uh, all around good vibes from this episode. I hope you guys liked it as well. Make sure to check in for episode number four, which is coming up. We already know the guests. You guys don't, so it's still a surprise for you. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in and see you in the next episode. Now, if you learned something in this episode, we would much appreciate it if you like and subscribe. Leave a comment with your main takeaways. Give us a five-star rating and follow the pod. This way we can reach more players and help them reach their big and ambitious poker goals. And if you want us to help you get to those goals, go over to pokerambition.com to find out more.